We conclude this week our series that we've entitled Landmines. We've been looking at these different topics, these different uh, points of conversation, and even points of contention in in our world and our culture today. And we've talked about some of these very... um, explosive topics that can cause all kinds of consternation. And one of the reasons why these are so explosive for the believer is we are uh, between two polar opposites of spectrums. We have the culture who has their definition, who has their idea on these certain topics, and then we have God's Word. And we've got a choice that we have to make. We have a decision that has to take place in our hearts and our minds of whether we're going to believe God And believe what he says about these things and that he is right and true. Or we're going to believe what the culture says. Now, here's the problem. In most of these things, the word of God says, I want you to refrain from these things. I want you to stay away from these things. I want you to do things my way with regards to these things. The culture says, I want you to grab a hold of them. I want you to get all kinds of uh, handles on these things because I want you, culture says, to embrace these things to the fullest. Don't listen to what God and his word says. Don't listen to what outdated and old-fashioned churches say about such things. This is about you and your pleasure and your desire and you having what you want when you need it, when you want it, because it is all about you. Well, those two ideas, those two thoughts are at war with one another. And the Christian, the Christ follower, stands in between those two teachings and we have to make a decision Am I going to follow God and his word, or am I going to go the way of culture? Now, culture has set these landmines, these temptations, to take the things of God, the gifts that God has given, and the devil has used them to try to tempt us into going the way of the world, to go the way of rebellion and sin. And this series has helped us to stop and to learn how to disarm and how to navigate the landmines that are all around us. Now the landmine today that we're going to talk about is the issue of money. The landmine itself is not money. It is the trap that money can create. And this morning we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you want to turn there this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to go from verse 6 to verse 19. But the majority of our time is going to be seen in verses 17 through 19. So you can turn there for a moment. And as you do, I want you to recognize and know that money isn't the issue. Money isn't the issue. Money is neither good nor bad. It is an amoral um, thing. That is, it's neutral. It's what you do with your money that's going to make it a good thing or a bad thing. It's what you do with your money that it either is going to receive the accolades of God or or it's going to be stuff that you're going to spend on self. Money isn't the problem, it's what we do with money that is. Now, in the church of Ephesus, where we are reading 1 Timothy, where Paul was writing to the preacher and pastor of the church, Timothy, the church of Ephesus had two waging ideas on what money was and how we were to pursue money. The first one was what we call asceticism. And asceticism was was that money was bad, you need to stay away from it as much as possible. And what that meant was that the Christian was never to be rich. And so any time that the Christian garnered any amount of surplus, he was to divest all his money and to give it away because it was the calling of the Christian to be poor. 
We see that in evangelicalism today. There are many who look at the uh, excesses of uh, uh, Christians who are living with all kinds of wealth amidst all kinds of people throughout our world dying in starvation, struggling to see their um, needs being met. And there are teachers, and ones that I respect, that say, listen, we're not called to be rich. We're called, and one of the pastors that I really do respect says, the Christian's view of money should be a wartime uh, involvement. What that means is during times of war, you're not living it up. You're making sure you're winning the war. You're rationing to take care of the needs that are far greater on the battlefield than they are here. Uh, that's asceticism, and that was alive and well in the church of Ephesus, and it's still alive and well today when you read uh, authors and individuals. But there's another side, and the other side is materialism. And there are pastors and teachers, and it's not hard to see this, where excess is the goal. Where there's this idea that uh, it is good and right for preachers to wear all kinds of designer clothes, uh, to drive designer cars, to live in designer homes. Uh, there's, in fact, an a, uh, Instagram and uh, Twitter uh, feed uh, of an individual who takes pictures of the high-end tennis shoes that preachers wear. Thousands of dollars being spent on these sneakers that are worn when uh, individuals uh, preach. Now, I want you to know this morning, this boot I got cost me $1,000. But it's nothing designer about it. But there's this idea that, listen, and we see it on the TV all the time, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be wealthy. You should have riches. That we should have all the great things in heaven because God wants to gift us all of these great things and we should accumulate all of these things for ourselves. In a megachurch in Atlanta not too long ago, the church was raising $15 million. For what? A Learjet for its, its pastor to fly with a level of comfort. I'm looking forward to that campaign here at Village. We can park it right over at Aurora Airport. No. There's got to be an in-between, right? There's got to be between asceticism and materialism. What does God's word have to say with regards to this landmine of how we use money? Well, Paul tells Timothy what we are to do. I want you to notice, I'm not going to go through all of this text, but I want you to notice this process of thinking that Paul has done. First Timothy is all about money in the church. It's all about how Christians address this issue of money. Just as a way of reference, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when talking about church leaders, he says of church elders, Paul does to Timothy, that you need to find spiritual men, elders, who do not have the love of money. One of the qualifications to serve as a leader within the church is that you're not a lover of money. How can you serve God and money at the same time? You can't. You're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. So an elder can't be a lover of money. When it talks of deacons, a minister of mercy, it says deacons, you can't be out for dishonest gain. In 1 Timothy 3, he tells us that. Then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verses 6 through 10, he talks to the poor people in the church of Ephesus. These are probably the slaves of the community. These individuals have nothing more than, than the food of, of daily life and maybe a pair of clothes, maybe an extra pair of clothes, and that's about it. And what Paul says to them is, listen, don't try to go after money, but notice what the text says in verse 6. 
He says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if you have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, to fall into temptation, into a snare. That's a first century word for the 21st century word landmine. A snare. And he says, be careful. Don't fall into the snare where many senseless and harmful desires have plunged people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so this truth is, for the poor people in the church, be content if you've got food, drink, and clothing. Be content that God is the provider, He will take care of you, and that your number one goal isn't to get rich, but to get godly. And so he tells them, be careful, because what Paul has learned through Timothy is a bunch of poor people seeking to be rich have ruined their lives because they love money. And they've plunged themselves into destruction. Now, you want to know how powerful money is? Money is so powerful that it can cause people to wander away from the faith. It can cause us to question our relationship with God. It can cause us to give up on God and to turn away. So notice in verse 11, Paul tells Timothy, Pastor, Pastor Tim, this is what I want you to know. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Don't go after riches. But pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. And then what he does is he uses Jesus as an example, and this is the proposition that he gives. Jesus, who was rich, he's the king of heaven. He has everything. He left riches to become poor. He took all that he had and bankrupted all of that into us by the giving of his grace and mercy for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Though he was rich, he became poor on our behalf. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to follow that. Every Christ follower, I want you to follow that. Don't pursue riches, pursue Christ. And he goes on. After talking about Christ and how Christ has done this and how awesome God, our Heavenly Father, is, in verse 17, he goes where our text will be for the rest of the time. Now, as for the rich, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are, that is, the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Listen to me. For many of us, the reason why we are not experiencing the life that God wants us to have is we're too busy pursuing money and not Him. And so money has become this great wall in our lives that keeps us from the life that God truly wants to give us. But instead of going after Him and pursuing Him and following after Him, we're following after the love of money and the pursuit of, of riches and the uh, garnering up of possessions that are temporal 
for the here and now. So what is a Christian to do? What is a Christian to do? Well, there's three things I want to do this morning. Number one, I want to acknowledge the problem. Two, I want to avoid some pitfalls. And then three, I want to then move to the activities that we need to, or priorities we need to activate. And that's what we're going to see in our text. So let's, uh, first of all, recognize we've got a problem. We've got a problem. We need to acknowledge that. Some years ago, a book was written called The Day America Told the Truth. It was by James Patterson, who's a famous author of many, many different books, and Peter Kim. And they revealed some shocking statistics as to how far people in our country would go to gain money. And so the question was asked of people, both men and women, young and old, what would you do, what are you willing to do to capture $10 million? Meaning the question is, what is your price? What, what would you be willing to do, good, bad, or ugly, to get yourself $10 million? How far would you go? Here's what the survey showed us. 25% of those who were surveyed said for $10 million, they would abandon their entire family. 23% said they would sell their bodies for a week or more. 16%, this is the one that I don't get, 16% would give up their American citizenship. Your citizenship is more important than selling your body? <laughs> that seems weird. Obviously, it doesn't seem weird to you, but it seems weird to me. I like being an American, but not that much, okay? And then 16% said for $10 million, they would leave their spouse. 10% said they would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. 7% said they'd kill a stranger. Let's just stop there. Look to the person sitting next to you and say your name. That way you're not a stranger anymore. And that now you're friends, right? What about parents? 3% of parents said they would give up their kids for adoption. The old adage is said that everyone has a price. When I was a teenager, a movie came out and uh, it was with uh, uh, three big stars. I can't remember who exactly they are. I'm not going to try to remember. But the whole premise of the movie was that for one night of romance, a millionaire man said he would give a million dollars to have an opportunity to be romantic with another man's wife. It was called The Indecent Proposal. We all have a price. Judas, one of the disciples of Jesus, rejected Jesus, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We all have a price. And what we need to recognize this morning is we all have a problem with money. But let's just stop and recognize that money takes care of a lot of problems. Amen? Money puts food on the table. Money puts clothes on our back. Money gives us a roof over our head. Money gives us a car so that we can travel both for fun and games and, and work alike. Money enables us, quite frankly, to have this wonderful church building. Money enables us to have church staff. Money enables us to travel and share the gospel with people. <clears throat> Money takes care of problems. But it seems that it isn't the issue of money being the problem, but a contentment issue. That Paul has singled in on this truth, and it is true for the poor and the rich alike. Because he's got a word for both of them. He says, poor person, don't start falling in love with the pursuit of money. And rich person, don't fall a prey to the security that you find in your money. 
And so it's this issue where we fall in love with money, and money takes the place of God, whether we know it or not. And so what Paul says is, okay, there's a problem. Money can take care of a lot of things, but money can create problems. The very earthy and wrong, in many ways, theologian, the notorious B.I.G., put it this way. More money, more problems. And he got that right. And he wrote that after he had amassed riches galore. Because the feeling is, and the thought is, is that if I had just a little more, if I had just a little more in my paycheck, then this problem would be alleviated. If I had just a little more, my marriage would be stronger. If I had just a little more, my car would be nicer. If I had just a little more, then life would just be a little better. But with more money, especially the pursuit of that money, can create all kinds of problems. We need to acknowledge we have a problem. Notice the second thing that we need to do, and that is avoid the pitfalls. And there's some pitfalls, there's four in fact in our text that we need to be careful of. The first pitfall that we've got to understand is the identity pitfall. So right away, notice in verse 17, Paul says, now as for the rich in this present age, now stop there, let's just look at that statement for a second. As for the rich in this present age, Well, I want you to recognize that right away when you hear that, some of you, just as maybe it was just in the first service, but I'm going to assume here in the second service, some of you will sit back and say, whoo, that was a close one. I thought he was talking about me. I'm not rich. And so I get to sit back and and Tim gets to hit with a sledgehammer, old Richie Rich sitting next to me because I, excuse me, don't drive what he drives. I don't live where he lives. I don't have the kind of uh, income that he has. So Tim talking to him. Paul's talking to him. I don't have to listen, but I'm sure glad that guy came to church. Well, here's the problem. We have an identity issue when it comes to being rich. Now, one thing I want to bring up before I address this identity issue is that this is talking about riches in the present age. And some of us are pursuing riches in this present age, and I want you to know that if you're pursuing riches over Christ, you may make tons of money in this age, but listen to me very carefully, my friends, you'll be bankrupt in eternity. And you will miss it. Remember uh, the story that Jesus told of of a rich farmer. And the rich farmer had so many crops and such a great harvest that he had to continue to build barns and silos to take in all the grain that he had. And he sat back after building all these barns and everything and the harvest being overflowing that he said, now I can take leave. It is a life of ease. I can eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, you fool, for today you will lose your soul. For some of us right now, we are living a life of ease in this present age. And I am here to warn you that you will enjoy this life. Enjoy it. Eat it up. Drink it up. Spend the money as you will. But there's a day coming. There's a moment coming where God will demand your soul. And it will be too late. So he says to the rich, I want to speak to you. Well, right away we say, well, he's not talking to me. 
We've got an identity problem. So let me help you with some identity issues. There's a website called the Global Rich List. I did this some years ago as a way of illustration, and I'm going to do it again because I think it's so very helpful. Because right away we hear to those who are rich, well, I'm not rich. And I'm here to tell you, yes, you are, and I'm going to substantiate my claim that this scripture is for all of us. The Global Rich List gives you the opportunity to put in an income based in dollars, and it tells you where you end up uh, as the richest person in the world by income. The first slide I want to show you is a person who makes a minimum wage each hour for a year. That's about $15,000 a year. If you're making a minimum wage in a year, you will accumulate <clears throat> about $15,000 as a single individual. If you make $15,000, which is the poverty line here in America, you would find yourself in the top 8% of people everywhere as the top 8% richest people in the world. Now granted, let's be realistic here. There are 474,000, I'm sorry, thousand million people who are richer than you if you're making minimum wage. But let's be reminded, there's still six and a half billion people in the world who make less than you do. Let's sweeten the deal and say that your spouse is going to make minimum wage with you. By that happening, you've now accrued $30,000 a year as a household, and you've now moved yourself into the top 1% of all people. You know, some years ago, we talked about the one percenters, and we should have laughed because we're all in the 1%. We're all in the top 1%. Now granted, 73 million people are richer than you are, but let's be reminded now that 6.9 billion people are poorer than you. Let's expand it. What about the national median income? The national median income of a household in the United States is $56,616 according to the Census Bureau. That would put you in the not top 1%, but the top 2 uh, two-tenths of a percent by richest income. Now, granted, if you're making the median income of $56,000 a year, you are still the 13th millionth richest person in the world. But remember now, we're talking 7 billion people being behind you. Now let's bring it closer to home, and let's look at the median income of Sugar Grove. The median income of Sugar Grove, according to the Census Bureau, is $108,000 for a household. That puts us at now eight-tenths of a percent as being the richest people in the world. We are in the top eight-tenths of one percent, which makes us the 4,759,424th richest person on the earth by income. Now, granted, you and I will never be on the Forbes 100 list or the Forbes 50 list, but we'll be on, if they ever do it, the Forbes 4,759,000 list. But notice how many more people are poorer than us. What this is to illustrate is not that riches are bad, but to illustrate that when we talk about being poor, the world hears this. Listen to me really carefully. The world hears when you and I say we're poor, we don't have enough money, the world hears that we have the smallest mansion in Bel Air. That's what they hear. They hear, okay, you're poor because your mansion is smaller than your neighbor's. I get it. We are rich. 
And we need to recognize that when we read this text, it's talking to you and it's talking to me. If we find ourselves in the Fox Valley area, we are rich beyond measure. And so what does he have to say to us? Now that we know he's talking to us, as for the rich in this present age, he says, charge them. Charge them. What he's saying is there's a priority. This is not a suggestion. This is not an idea. This, I've got a word for you. Jay Adams, the commentator, said this is to authoritatively instruct. What is going to be said to us are not recommendations or suggestions. They are commands to be followed. You are rich, then listen up and change what you're doing so that your life may be ordered in the way that God has called you to live it. And the commitment that he's asked of us is not to not be rich, but what he has said is, your priority is not to garner more riches, but to garner godliness. Not to pursue more money, but to pursue greater righteousness. You see, at the end of the day, when we stand before Jesus, he's not going to care about how much money he gave you. He's going to ask the question, what did you do with the money? He isn't going to ask what was in our bank accounts. He's going to ask what we did with the money in our bank accounts. And he's going to ask the question, did we use it for his glory or for our selfish desires? There's a priority. And Paul says, make sure the people of God know that this money issue has to be figured out. Because if it doesn't and they step on this landmine, it will bring them great pains and great destruction. There's a priority that needs to be seen. Pitfall number three is the issue of humility. He goes on, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, tell them, command them not to be haughty, not to be prideful, not to be arrogant. Why? Because there's something about being rich that has a cousin to it of being arrogant. And here's how it works. We have lots of money, which enables us to drive nice cars and live in nice houses and have lots of nice things. And what we begin to think are a couple of things. Number one, I deserve what I have. And what we begin to say is, look how hard I've worked. Look at how smart I am. Uh, A plus B equals riches. So I worked hard and I'm really smart and therefore I'm rich. And then we take that equation and we turn it around and say, well, what about poor people? Well, they're poor instead of being rich. And so that means they're lazy and they're dumb. And I'm smart and I'm hardworking and I'm rich. You see what begins to happen and what we're told is our riches are a gift from God. It's not something we garnered. And what we need to recognize is it's God who gave us our brains. It's God who gave us the ability to acquire and make wealth. It is God who just very quickly could take our mind, could take our bodies, and keep us from being able to do the work that we're doing. It is God who could take away uh, everything. We know the story of Job, one of the most wealthy of men. And the devil came and said, hey, I think if you get rid of everything that Job has, he'll curse you. And God says, go ahead. You can do everything, anything you want to Job, just can't touch him. You can't uh, kill him. And so the devil starts taking away all these things. And that's what the devil wants to do with us. The devil wants us to ask the question, will we follow God if money's not involved? And so we've got this humility issue because we think we have garnered this, we think we have gained this, and therefore we deserve it. But the motto of the Christian should be, my richest gain 
I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride, the songwriter says. We need to recognize that we would have nothing if it weren't for God and His goodness. But we start driving nice cars and living in nice houses, and we start asking the question, why won't they drive a nice car? Why don't they fix it? Why won't they be better money managers? Why? And we begin to separate people, and little do we know that haughtiness has entered our lives. We need humility. Finally, we need the issue to avoid the issue of security. Notice he goes on, he says, now, don't set your hearts, rich people, or hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You see, there's something, when we have money, we live at ease. When we have money, we stop worrying because we've got the ability to pay the bills. We've got the ability to take care of things. Whereas the poor, they worry about everything. Where am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? What am I going to wear? And they're filled with all of this worry and all of this dread about what the next meal is going to come from, what they're going to do. The rich person doesn't have to worry about that at all. What they're dreaming of is what their next car is going to look like. What they're dreaming up is where the next resort they're going to go or next vacation they're going to go on. They're not concerned about the daily necessities and the daily needs that they have. They're worried about how they're going to spend their money. But what Paul says is, listen, rich people, which includes you and me, I don't want you to find your security in your money. Because here's a truth that we need to never forget. Money is an uncertainty. The Bible says that money has wings and it will fly away. And I have seen, when I've counted on money, money has disappeared. If you have children, you've seen that disappearing act so very quickly. My kids go to the dentist just to get their teeth clean. My wife comes home and she says, uh, we just put down a thousand dollar down payment on braces. What? What just happened? What just happened? Their teeth are fine. They're boys. They don't have to be pretty. Okay? Money flew away. And it will happen. You put all your faith and trust in the stock market. Right now, listen, this is so appropriate for today. The stock market had its best week in years this week. And you're sitting there and you're riding high. My 401k is awesome. I'm going to be able to retire and I'm just going to live it up. It's going to be great. Let us be reminded that it was just about 10 or 11 years ago that the national economy lost trillions upon trillions of dollars because of something that sounds so wonderful, a bubble, a housing bubble. That sounds so benign. What happened? Why'd you lose your house? A bubble. Here today and gone tomorrow. And so when we put our hope in riches, and what I mean by hope in riches is that when we start putting money before God, that money's going to fix things, money's going to address things, then we become idolatrous and we push God out. In one of his last public statements at Stanford University, um, Apple CEO, Steve Jobs Steve Jobs gave a remark, and he told young people after he knew that his time was done, he had learned recently before that, that he would enter into hospice care for the end of his life because of a cancerous tumor that he had. He told them the one thing that will bring him down is something that money can't buy, sickness. 
No amount of money was going to fix his tumor. He was a billionaire, one of the richest men in all of the world. And the one thing that he had hope in was that his money would take care of things. And a problem came that money couldn't fix. Do not put your hope in your money. Now notice he gives a contrast in the text. Where do you put your hope? Verse 15. He says that where we are to put our hope is, is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, money will dissolve away. Money will be eaten by rust and destroyed by moths. But Jesus, our God in heaven, has immortality. He was in the beginning, and he'll be in the end. And he was before both and after both of those things. He is the one who dwells in unapproachable light. It is him who deserves all honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. Can we say an amen to that? That's where our hope is. Paul says, don't put your hope in money. Put your hope in God. Well, that moves us now to some priorities. And we'll move quickly through these. But there are some priorities. So now we know we're rich. Now we know we need to be careful not to be haughty in our riches. And now we know that we can't put our hope in riches. What are we to do? Notice we are to depend on God. It says in the text, don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Do you depend on God? Do you depend on God for your job? Do you depend on God for the ability to do your job and to do it well? Do you depend on God for your paycheck? Do you depend on God for the money that you have and the possessions that you have? Or do you depend on yourself? And the way you know it, listen very carefully, is how you hold those things in your possession. If you depend on God, then your bank account is in an open hand. If it's yours and you depend on yourself, it is with a closed fist. So is your house, is your money, are your possessions in an open hand before God saying, God, I didn't bring these things into existence. I'm not the one who brought these things into my life. You did. And so I leave them open to you. You can take them. You can leave them. I'm giving them to you because they were never mine in the first place. I'm just a manager of these things. Or are you holding on to these things so tightly because you know and recognize that you got them yourself and you're not going to let anybody take them away because they're yours. We need to depend on God. Money is a major test of a person's character. Do you depend on God or yourself? I share this over and over again. If someone was to look at your checkbook would they be able to define you as a Christian on the way that you spend your money? Would they be able to say, this is a person who depends on God? This is a person who, who, who knows that money isn't his. Look at how he gives. Look at how he's generous. Look at how he, he, he looks at life and his possessions. He's not uh, defining himself by what he's accumulated. He defines himself by who he's been saved by. And the gratitude that that individual has for God and showing him his grace and mercy. What does your checkbook or bank account have to say about who your God is? Is it God or as Jesus asked, is it money or possessions? Number two, we depend on God. We need to also recognize we need to delight in his gifts. We need to delight 
in his gifts. He goes on and he says, okay, don't look to the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I do not want you to go home and you're going to go home and you say, finish the landmine series. It was a doozy. Let's get to Amos already. Let's deal with the Old Testament already. I'm tired of this landmine series because what I've been told to do is go home, gut my house, and put everything out on the driveway and put a big free sign. It's everybody's. Pastor Tim told me, why are you selling all your possessions? Well, I went to church today and Pastor Tim told me, I got to get rid of everything because it's bad to be rich. Notice. There's not a word of condemnation to the rich. He does not call out the rich. He warns them of things. But notice what he tells the rich to do. To enjoy what God has given. And so, if you have a house, if you have a car, if you have all kinds of possessions in your possession, that you have a good conscience of how you've acquired it. Listen to me, if you're driving around a car you stole, it is not a gift from God. Okay? You need to turn it in. You've been a thief. But if you can in good conscience say, I did what God called me to do. He called me to work, and I provided for my family, and I'm living within the light of Scripture, and I'm giving back to the Lord, and I'm, and I'm uh, uh, taking care of my family, and I, so I've got this nice TV, I've got this nice car, I've got this nice whatever it is. I want you to know, if you can stand before God in good conscience, then God says, enjoy it. Have a blast with it. Don't make it a God, but enjoy it. Enjoy that car. Enjoy that house. Enjoy the things that you give your children. God has given it to you for you to enjoy everything. So we should enjoy these things. God has given us these gifts. And just as we give gifts to our children, we want our children to enjoy the gifts that we give them. So God wants us to enjoy those gifts. But while we're enjoying them, while we're delighting in those gifts, we are to do lots of good. We are to do lots of good. The text goes on. And he says, okay, we depend on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are, that is the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works. And so what we are to do is we are to take all the good that God has given. We are to enjoy them. But while we're enjoying these things, we are to be busy at work doing good in the lives of other people. One of the things that rich people can do, what you and I can do, is we can accumulate so much stuff that is good and fun of us to enjoy that we get so busy enjoying our stuff that we never are a blessing to other people. We're too busy enjoying the car. We're too busy enjoying the house that we never ask the question, well, how can I be helping and serving those around me? How can I be uh, uh, a good steward of the gifts that God has given me. So think about this, the last windfall you got, whether it was a raise or a bonus, a tax return or an inheritance. When you get those things, let me ask you this question. Are you quick to raise your standard of living? Or do you begin to ask, how can I raise my standard of giving? Maybe God gave you that inheritance. Maybe God gave you that, uh, that bonus. Maybe God gave you that raise, not so you can turn in the 2008 car to get a 2018 car, but maybe he says contentment and godliness is great gain. I'm going to stick with my 2008 and I'm going to bless someone with a car that they need. 
Maybe I'm going to do that. Because maybe God has given me this money not to use it for myself, but to use it for others. We need to be busy doing lots of good around us. But notice he goes on. What does that good look like? In 18b, he says that we are to divest our assets through generosity. It never says stop being rich. It just says, now listen, what you're to do is to be generous and ready to share. So let me ask you this, rich person. When it comes to your money, let me ask one very important question. This is the, uh, the charging, if you will, that Paul tells Timothy to do. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and God has given you riches, which I've now concluded that we all have, one of the things that God requires is that we give back to him. We give back to him. And so if you're living here in America in a place of great wealth and, and you are not giving out of a proportion of your income back to the Lord, whether it's to a local church or it's to ministry, wherever you want to do it, you're not going to hear me say it's got to come here. But if you're not giving back to the Lord in some way, you know what God says in Malachi? He says, you're robbing me. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10. You're stealing from me. I've given you all this, and I haven't required all of it back, but I've asked that you be reminded that you're going to depend on me, and the one way you depend on me is to give a portion back to me. If you're not doing that, then God says, not your pastor, that you're robbing from him. He who has generously given and gives it for our enjoyment, calls us to give back in proportion of our income. So if you're a rich individual making thousands of dollars, what God isn't saying is give him a tip. Give him some token thing like he was a waiter that did a nice job in serving you the food. This is the God who loved you in your sin, rescued you from your sin by his grace and mercy, has given you life and breath and all of it, has given you all that you have, all that I've had, And what he says is, be reminded that I'm the giver of the gifts by giving something back to me for the gospel movement. And if you're not, you can call me a legalist all you want. God says you're robbing him. What are you robbing him of? Of him blessing you. Of him showing you what life is all about. Because notice he goes on and he says... Thus storing up for yourself treasures as a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Listen, some of you are wondering why you're not experiencing the goodness of God. Some of you are wondering why you feel like, man, God seems far from me and my life doesn't feel as victorious as it should be. And there's a big reason why, because you have created a wall between the blessing God wants to give and your own selfish desires and pursuits with regards to money. And God says, as long as you're pursuing money, you will never experience, never experience the life I truly want you to have because you are depending on yourself. And in doing so, you think that you can come up with a better life on your own than me giving it to you. And it's there that we fall on the landmine. It is there that we, as verse 10 says, we plunge ourselves into ruin and destruction. So what does he want us to do? God wants us to stop, not stop thinking about glory. In this present age, we may be rich, but are we rich for the kingdom to come? Are we storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven? Jesus said, 
that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and not the riches. We can't serve God and money at the same time. We're going to love one and hate the other. But if we pursue God, we are storing up riches where moth and rust cannot destroy. So let me ask you this morning, are you storing up more in the here and now or more for the heavenly realms? Don't stop, as Fleetwood Mac said, thinking about tomorrow. Many of us are thinking about the riches in retirement, and we're not asking the questions, how are we storing up riches in glory? To do so, we have got to stop depending and trusting on ourselves and our money and start depending on God and trusting God and believing that the God of this universe has a life for you and I that we will get to enjoy if we will only trust and obey him.